the delightful joy that we each feel this evening with the opportunity that we've been given to come together on this Sunday afternoon to extend a bit into the evening hour is truly a great blessing indeed as we appreciate many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe today who haven't had at least the privilege in an unpersecuted way that you and I have. What a tremendous opportunity and truly a great thing that we have to praise God in this fashion. As was mentioned earlier in the announcements, truly we're thankful for the presence of each and every one, our regular membership, our visitors alike, and we'd like each one hopefully to feel as though that their time spent has been edifying to them and that we each shall be better set and better prepared this week to be the proper servants that we can be, using our talents to direct them toward the service of God. As you might have noted in the reading from the Second Corinthian epistle, we tonight will look at a matter of reconciliation. And the title of the lesson is, Be Ye Reconciled, taken directly from the closing part of verse 20 of that chapter. Some introductory thoughts about the wonderful privilege of the discussion of reconciliation may in fact be in order. Some of the most powerful passages in all the New Testament seem to include or revolve around the subject of reconciliation. It's a majestic thing to consider. And tonight, as we look at this particular passage, we will seek to answer a number of questions related to this subject. What is reconciliation? Is it an urgent matter? That is to say, is it important? If so, in what way is it accomplished? As we, in fact, address all of them, we shall find again that some of those passages, and it's mentioned 14 times directly verbatim in the King James New Testament, We'll be interested to see among those occurrences that some of them are probably some of the most favorite texts that you and I may have in terms of all the 27 New Testament books. Be ye reconciled. If you and I were inquired or asked to define reconciliation and to answer in a brief way some of those questions that we had just now asked, would we be able to do that from a biblical perspective to discuss reconciliation? May I submit that we have a bit of a journey ahead of us, and as we attempt to use the Scriptures to define and answer all of these questions, if you'd like to take notes, feel free to do that, as I know some of you do, and as we study and think on these matters this week, perhaps we shall be better able to see our perspective or our position from God's perspective and appreciate more grandly the grand theme of reconciliation. The first slide that we shall now consider to help us is basically a definitional one. How do we define reconciliation? It's made of two parts, both of which likely we can well understand. That prefix re, R-E, simply means again or to repeat something. The verb conciliate, C-O-N-C-I-L-I-A-T-E, means to make friendly. And thus, to put the two together, this concept of reconcile or reconciliation has to do with to make friends again. In a very direct way, then, it has to do with the discussion of parties that once were friendly. They, in fact, enjoyed wonderful concourse and tremendous friendly attitudes one toward the other, but due to one reason or another, the parties have become separated. They are no longer on friendly terms with each other. They are now, if you perceive, at a distance. The concept of reconciliation has to do with, then with remaking that friendship to make friendly again. 
And that concept is, in fact, such a dramatic one in the sense that its appearance with regard to spiritual reconciliation is so easily perceived in light of the texts that describe our position in God's place, that is to say, how He views us. And tonight, let's continue to look more interestingly at that consideration of reconciliation. Having defined it, is there a need for it? Is it important? Is it essential? Starting from the early stages in the history of the human family, we learn almost immediately how vital it truly is, do we not? As God had fashioned Adam and Eve and placed them in that Garden of Eden, a place where all their physical needs were satisfied and met, and furthermore, they had the opportunity to carry on a direct dialogue with God Himself. And yet, through the agency of the tempter, Eve proceeded to partake of that forbidden fruit. And as she partook thereof, she had been led to do that in pursuit of those three avenues of sinfulness, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. To note the phrasing of 1 John 2 verse 15. And as she partook of that, she gave to Adam, and he also did eat, Genesis 3 verse 6. And in the partaking of that fruit, we find that their eyes were opened, they perceived that they were naked, and they proceeded to hide in the garden as God came walking in the cool of the day. On that occasion, might we pause to again appreciate ultimately what had happened. In the understanding that they were naked, and in the recognition that they needed to distance or hide themselves from God, they now, of course, had sinned. And the New Testament identifies and defines the whole nature of what that is. In the fourth verse of 1 John 3, the inspired writer John made this definition for that very idea. He said, Whosoever sinneth transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. What law? Civil law? Tennessee law? Kentucky law? Well, of course not. The idea in mind is it not God's law set forth in whatever dispensation or whatever age may be the particular one under discussion for that individual. In this early patriarchal age and time, Adam and Eve had violated, transgressed the law God had put in place for them because he had said in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, thou shalt not eat. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. As God had made that statement, Adam and Eve now had not kept that statement. They had directly violated it by their actions, and as such, had become guilty of sin. What were the consequences of that? Many things could be said, but in the time allotted to us tonight, let's merely note a couple of them. First, in Genesis 3, after their partaking of that forbidden fruit, God proceeded first to address the serpent, then He addressed the woman, and then He addressed the man, meeting out punishments for each one. And as that chapter drew to its conclusion, this is one of the things that came to be the case. Adam and Eve were driven from that precious Garden of Eden. And furthermore, a flaming sword was placed as well as cherubims to guard the way of the tree of life. They no longer had access to that powerful and wonderful tree whose fruit would have permitted them to dwell in the flesh forever. But there was something else. They were now distanced from God. 
they were in need of being brought back to him. They, in, in fact, by their choice, had chosen to travel their own path and their own way, regardless of the pathway that God had selected for them. They were thus, since not on his roadway, they were distanced from him. It's as though God had remained in position and they had chosen to rebel and to turn their back upon his will. As terrible as that thought is, it is nonetheless a matter that has been repeated countless millions of times throughout the course of human history. For is it not still true, in the language of 1 Kings 8, 46, there is no man that sinneth not, and Paul's famous quotation in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us can claim exemption from sin, in the sense that we never were nor shall we ever be guilty of it. In fact, John proclaims that if we are so bold as to make such a statement as that, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9. The powerful fact is then that you and I stand in a place not too different from where Adam and Eve were. They had God's will and they chose to rebel against it. As such, becoming guilty of sin, they were distanced from God. Is it any different for us when we allow that sinful thought to cross our mind? When we say something that we know we should not have said, and when we actually do something that we know is apart from the will of God, we too are guilty of sin. And in fact, is it not also true in John James 4 verse 17, that to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Thus, in all those ways, you and I can still be as guilty of sin, and as such are distanced from God. And what a frightful position to be in, to be distanced from that great and marvelous God of heaven. I suppose the prophet Isaiah, as he addressed the children of Israel in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, directed the point as plainly as perhaps it could be, when there as he described what the consequences of Israel's sins were, might we in fact notice how direct the same meaning is for us. He said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The language employed by the Holy Spirit through Isaiah was language that so powerfully directed to the thought that sin will distance any person from God. At that point, might we revisit the meaning of the word reconciliation. One who is then on friendly terms with God at one time and then sins is now distanced from Him and is in need of becoming friendly with God again, is in need of reconciliation. Is it any wonder then that that idea is mentioned these 14 times in the Holy Scriptures and some of the most powerful attributes of it are driven home time and time again? So much so that in our next slide, as we begin to now answer our second question, we have learned what reconciliation is by definition, and we have seen how important it is that it's so needful and in fact is essential if we expect to live pleasingly to God. Maybe in the next idea, there's one other thing though about that needfulness that needs to be addressed. That needfulness takes the following set of conversations. As we've identified the need for 
reconciliation, how is it accomplished? Though we will look at that more carefully in a moment, is it not safe to say there is some need for a mediator? Pause for a minute and think with me about the status of mediation and how it relates to reconciliation. From time to time, we observe in the way that things operate in our land that there are two parties that are distanced one from the other. They may be governmental parties in some sense. They may be cultural parties in some sense. They may even be nations that themselves do not see eye to eye and are in desperate need of some kind of reconciliation. Is it not still true that the Israelis and the Palestinians have been at odds now for decades, yea, even millennia, and most likely it shall continue so? But we have seen many individuals strive to serve in the role of a mediator. What does a mediator do, and how does it relate to reconciliation? I've listed a definition for your, for your thinking. A mediator is simply one who serves as an intermediary. Or to say that differently, one who settles differences by means of intervention one way or another. Differences, and to have them settled. We have often seen individuals attempt to serve as a mediator. But now I think the good question to be asked. If you and I as sinners are distanced from God and are thus in need of reconciliation, how is the mediation to take place and who may serve as the mediator? Might we hopefully employ a fellow Christian? Could we possibly employ a good friend of the neighborhood? What about a high governmental official in our land? Who might it be able to be? We might be quick to say, and no doubt for those in the hearing of my voice, we each know the answer already. But might I submit to you, there are many in our land who are not openly given to that answer. Oh, they may admit it so, but they live in a way apart from the nature of what's declared by the mediator. It might do well then to ask, what are the criteria that would permit a person to serve as a mediator? I believe once we answer that question, we will have everything else that we need to continue in our study tonight. I've listed a few criteria for you to consider with me. First of all, isn't it rather obvious to say that between any differences and the parties related to them, if an individual is to serve as the mediator, the mediator cannot be a party to the actual distinction or difference. That person could not have been the cause of the difference in the first place. That perhaps seems obvious, but that isn't the only criterion for a mediator. Secondly, the same thing could be noted. That mediator needs to be able to identify with both parties. It's safe to say, and this is one of the things that's led to such a difficulty in that mediation of the Palestinian-Israeli problems. The Palestinians, by and large, are unwilling to accept the mediation of any Western power because they cannot identify, so they think, with their perspective. But notice in the third place, the mediator needs to be able to equally associate with both parties. If one or the other perceives a prejudice or bias of the mediator to the other, it's almost a guarantee that the terms of the mediation will not be accepted. In the fourth place, it's an unnecessary matter for the mediator to be knowledgeable 
not only of what caused the problem to start with, but of the status of the two parties that are now at odds. Without that knowledge, it would be very difficult indeed to pose any kind of matters that could bring them to unison and to cause them to be reconciled. And perhaps finally, that mediator needs to be an individual respected by both parties. If they have no respect for the person in the role of the mediator, they'll have little respect for the terms proposed by the person, most likely. With those kinds of things affirmed, might we now revisit our separation from God by the process of sin? Is there a person, a being, who can satisfy all five of these terms? Who can, in fact, then serve by the nature of his person to be an appropriate, rightly, and wonderfully capable mediator. I have some passages for us to consider that may hone our thinking a bit more carefully and assert what we've already thought, no doubt, that Jesus is uniquely qualified to serve as a mediator. And I use that word uniquely with purpose. There is no other being in all of the universe, either material or non-material, that can serve as the mediator because there would be one or the other of those qualifications not satisfied. Considering Jesus, we learn in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, the inspired apostle Paul there affirming that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. It is thus hopeless to rely upon a human being or an angel or any other being with even in heavenly realms the seraphim, for example, mentioned in Isaiah 6, they couldn't serve as a mediator. It is only Christ Jesus. That point is also addressed in an interesting way in Revelation 5, isn't it? Where there, that lion of the tribe of Judah, when John relooks again, has become a lamb, the beautiful and powerful lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. To quote the words of John the Immerser in John 1.29, is it any wonder in Revelation 5 verse 12 that remarkable anthem is uttered? Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. In fact, on that occasion, all of creation, be it earthly or even in heaven, bowed before the great Lamb of God, recognizing that He alone had the power to loose the seals and open the seven-seal book and relate the contents to, in fact, John and to others. To speak about the unique qualifications of Jesus, some other passages could also be readily noted. In Luke 5.32, that next qualification that we had noted, that the mediator cannot, in fact, be a person who's a party to or has caused the difficulty. In Luke 5.32, we read of Jesus that he is the great physician and in fact, there he said, they that are sick need a physician. And he said, I came to call the sinners to repentance. The Lord's not interested in anyone remaining in a state of sinfulness. He wants to remove it by virtue of the efficacy of his blood that took place and was shed at Calvary. As the Lord shed that precious, sinless blood, he certainly did so with the intent that the human family would in fact bow before the nature of what he had to offer and gladly accept it. But another passage that highlights the Lord's interest in helping to put aside sin, in John 8 verse 11, 
when that woman was caught in the act of adultery, so the Pharisees claimed, and they brought her to Jesus, when he concluded that discussion, he said, Go and sin no more. Sin is not something the Lord wishes to encourage or exalt or lift up or support. He's certainly no party to the sinfulness of man. But a second qualification we had noted, taken from the very character of one able to identify with both parties. Can Jesus identify with God's side in this? Can He understand God's perspective with regard to human sinfulness? He can. For in Hebrews 1 verse number 8 we read that He Himself is God. Is it not there said, Thy throne, O God, is a scepter of righteousness. Noticing that the Old Testament quotation from Psalm 45 in fact calls Jesus God. He is God incarnate when He was here in the flesh. In 1 John 5 verse 20, He is identically called God. He can easily perceive then God's side to this. Can He see the human side? That's the great attribute of the fact that He lived in the flesh. Let's notice again Hebrews 4 verse 15. There we read, For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He can see my side and yours. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Three times as the devil had driven him into the wilderness in Matthew 4 verse 1, in the verses that followed, he was tempted those three very dramatic times. And on every occasion, the Lord triumphed over them. He overwhelmed, in fact, the opportunities that the devil presented. And in fact, in verse number 11, we read that the devil was sent upon his way. The Lord had not succumbed to those temptations. But Jesus can identify with what it's like to be tempted. He can identify with the human condition. He understands what it's like to be sorrowful. When his friend Lazarus had passed away, we read the shortest verse in the English translation of the New Testament in John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. His heart was broken when he saw Martha and Mary crying over the loss of their brother. Did the Lord know what it was like to be sorrowful? He did. Did he know what it was like to be hungry or thirsty or the other things that surround the human condition? He knows all of them. Can he thus identify with our side of things just as surely as with God's? He can. For that reason, he meets one of those qualifications to serve beautifully as a mediator between God and us. But in the third place, we read in texts such as John 14, 9, that this very one knows powerfully God's interest in justice. On that occasion, the Lord told Philip, Thou hast seen me, thou hast seen the Father. Those were dramatic words, weren't they? And just as surely as Jesus made that statement, He is the embodiment of all that's perfect in terms of godliness and in terms of the appropriateness of what's right. That being said, could we remember Hebrews 2 verse 14? On that occasion, we learn why He took the form of flesh he did it because in that fashion he could set before us the ideal example in the flesh and furthermore could defeat him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. The last three words, in fact, of Hebrews 2 verse 14. That leaves us only two more to consider. We notice in that fifth place earlier one who is knowledgeable of the facts. Is Jesus knowledgeable of all the facts concerning the separation between God and us? 
He absolutely is. We learn in Genesis 1, for instance, as we noted this morning, the plural usages of those words, us and we, in that chapter. Christ was the critical one who executed God's plan for creation, wasn't He? Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17 says that without Him nothing was made. And do we not still read in Matthew 28, verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All of it. The Lord knows absolutely God's side and He knows ours. Who better then could serve as a mediator than He? Finally, what about respectfulness? It is true that there are some humans who don't respect the Lord. But their foolishness certainly cannot be used as an excuse for all of the human family. Those who are wise, those who understand the Scriptures, not only respect Him, but humbly bow in His presence and recognize His body is the church and we must be dutiful servants thereof if we expect to be saved. Ephesians 5.23 The respectfulness thus given to the Savior might well have been uttered most wonderfully even on the very outset in Matthew 1, verse 21, where there the statement is made, He shall save His people from their sins. To speak about Jesus in these ways, I would hope, has been enough to confirm for us He is the ideal mediator. Every qualification that's needed, He meets, and in fact exceeds it. But perhaps that leads us to the next point then. If He is the mediator, how is reconciliation now accomplished? What are the details? What are those specifics? One of the first things we might identify and think about is the wording that Paul set forth in the very text that was read in our hearing earlier. Let's revisit verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me pause to, in fact, emphasize a rather interesting aspect of that text. There is a specific direction included in it. Let me, in fact, highlight those words, if I might. Who hath reconciled us to himself? Isn't it interesting? God was the one who remained in the state of perfectness, and by your sin and mine, we have moved away from him. The reconciliation was thus such that we needed to be brought back to God. He didn't come to us. That's an important point to note primarily because there's a significant amount of false teaching in our world relative to that idea. There are those who will openly affirm that God is reconciled to us, not the other way around. I'd submit to you that's nothing short of open blasphemy. You and I are in need of rec being reconciled to Him. And that's the way Paul uttered it, isn't it? By our sin, we are covered in the blackness of darkness. We are covered with all the evil that surrounds sin, and we need that cleansed so that we can come back to Him. Not that He forfeits some measure of His goodness and comes to where we are. It is still true in Psalm 5 verse 4 and Habakkuk 1 verse 13 that thou art of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. God will not dwell where evil is. And he doesn't behold that with an attitude of supporting or encouraging it either. You and I, as per the statement of Paul, are in need of being reconciled to 
him. Isn't it interesting, the next prepositional phrase already identified the agency. It says, by Christ Jesus. By Jesus Christ. We've already learned he's the mediator, the only one between God and men. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. And now Paul affirms that it is through Jesus Christ that we are reconciled to God. The nature of that reconciliation is such that in this particular verse, the highlight activity on the part of the mediator that made that possible is very specifically stated. It wasn't the parables that Jesus taught. It wasn't the miracles that Jesus worked. Those by themselves, as great as they were, and even his virgin birth by itself is not the means by which reconciliation is purchased. Did he not say in this particular text before us it had to do with the Lord's death? It had to do with what transpired at the cross. We noted this morning in Romans 5 verse 8, but how appropriate it is to consider it again. In that particular text we read, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. But that text goes on in the next two verses. After affirming that you and I were his enemies, and Christ died for us even when we were the enemies to God. Verses 9 and 10 then says, Much more than being now reconciled to him. And there's that word again, reconciled. Reconciled to God by the death of his son. There's the agency. That's the moment, that's the event at which the activity of reconciliation was made possible. It took place when the Lord shed His blood at Calvary. That's what paid the price for your sins and for mine. Reconciliation, thus, being brought back to God could take place. The church, of course, is the means that proclaims that truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 And the church heralds far and wide the power of Christ's blood and the only power that it possesses to bring about the nature of that reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing to consider, isn't it? To be made friendly again with God. In Amos 3 verse 3, the question is asked, Can two walk together except they be agreed? That question may seem self-evident. Two, if they're walking together are agreed. However, due to sin, you and I aren't walking the pathway with God. But it's only by virtue of the reconciliation made available by the death of Christ that we can tread that pathway with the Savior that leads into everlasting life. Friendly terms with God again. I've mentioned that several times during the course of the lesson this evening. And I thought it interesting to notice verse number 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. This verse is just after the reading that we had read earlier. But now I hope it will take on a whole new significance for us. Having discussed about reconciliation, verse 21 now reads as follows. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The identification of those pronouns takes on a powerful emphasis, doesn't it? For He, namely God, made Him, namely Christ, to be sin for us, you and me. Now when it says, who knew no sin, that clause identifies and modifies the Him who refers to Jesus. Jesus didn't know any sin in the flesh, but yet 
he took upon himself your sin and mine. As such, and in that way the verse closes, that we, that's us, might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's the work of the mediator. The capability on the one hand to appease God. He in fact brings my sin and yours, carries them on his shoulder, paid the price at Calvary, and hence the price was paid for those sins. We can stand justified and sanctified before him, before God, because of that. But also the beneficence and the beneficiary for us. Notice here, you and I can stand righteous before God, not because of the claim of arrogance and pride that might be ours. Oh, all the good works of life are still but filthy rags compared to meriting the blood of Jesus. But when God looks to His Son that sits wonderfully upon His right hand and says, What about the sin of Randy? Jesus can say, I paid the price for Randy's sin. And the Lord can look upon me and see righteousness again, not because of the good works I've done, but because of the shed blood upon Christ's behalf for me. And that's the only way anyone can stand righteous in the sight of heaven. The wonder about the New Testament Christian living identifies with beautifulness and with power the marvelous wonder of reconciliation and all the things that go into it. It is a different thing, isn't it, to discuss that kind of reconciliation than between parties upon earth. Because isn't it still true that when two individuals disagree, they are both mortals. But when you and I and God are at odds, things are now different because He is perfect and I am not. He is far superior and I am far inferior. And there's again the wonder of the Lord's mediation. He can see my inferior side. He can appreciate God's superior side, can't He? And in that mediation, He meets every qualification. And at, his, at the cross, He made it possible for all of us to stand justified before Him. The teaching of New Testament reconciliation. To be made friendly again with God. Might we say, as we draw near the conclusion of our lesson this evening, of yet the importance of obedience. Jesus, as we have affirmed at the cross, shed His blood to make a way for reconciliation. And then He established terms whereby man could, in fact, apply to himself or herself the terms and the blessings of that reconciliation. Obedience is that which the Lord demanded. In John 15, 14, He said, You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. If we thus are to be made friendly with God, Jesus said that friendliness demands you do what I say. And He is Lord of all, isn't He? Acts 10, verse 36. One chapter earlier, in fact, to that text in John, in John 14, 15, He said, again speaking about the nature of obedience, the character and beauty of doing that which He has taught. And His commands are not grievous. 1 John 5, verse 3. You and I can each then ask and remind ourselves of the removal of sin that the Lord accomplished. Taking the guilt, and I should say the guilt of it away, that you and I can stand justified, whole and sanctified before Him. That picture in Revelation 6 and is repeated in Revelation 20, 
when the saints stand before the presence of God and hear Him pronounce upon them the eternal benefit that they have longed to have, you and I also wish to be in their position, don't we? To hear Him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. To quote the two verses in Matthew 25, 21 and Matthew 25, 23. Tonight, where do you stand? And where do I stand? Are you reconciled to God? Jesus paid the price for that reconciliation to happen. And if you currently aren't, there is the need upon your part to apply the terms of that reconciliation to you. As revealed in the New Testament, that involves this. If you have never become a Christian, just as Paul and just as all the other examples in Acts, you are in need of hearing the word of the Lord. We are taught more than once in the Scriptures, blessed are they that hear, seven times in the Revelation. Tonight, if you have heard the word of the Lord, and you know that in sin you need to be reconciled to God, don't forget Paul's command, be ye reconciled. That reconciliation is accomplished when you do what the Lord has commanded. After hearing, believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His majestic name as the only begotten Son of the Holy Father. And then be immersed, baptized in order for those sins to be forgiven and remitted. It's at that point we see the beautiful act in which you and I can feel that reconciliation. I can assure you, when you rise from that water grave of baptism, you'll feel like you've never felt before. It'll be a feeling of purity, a feeling of having been cleansed, a feeling of whiteness as pure as the snow. Once you begin that walk with the Savior, you may well have found yourself living in a way that is not pleasing to God, perhaps even disgraceful to the church in the name of Jesus. Come back to that first love. Don't linger in a state of danger. Don't skate on the thin ice of this life. It's far too risky. Come back to your first love. Jesus, the wonderful Son of God, He will welcome you back with open arms. But you also need to repent of the sins that have caused that current separation. You again need to be reconciled to Him. We'll pray with you. We'll pray on your behalf. If either of these things would be the need of your life tonight, would you not in kindness and in urgency let it be known so that you can be reconciled to God even while together we stand and while we sing?